Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome. Welcome to this show. Uh, I'm excited about this show. I mean, theoretically, I should be excited about all the shows, but uh, this one, just because of the way it came together, I kind of like it. We're going to be talking in just a second to Kathy Geiswhite, who is iconic. Either she's iconic or the... The, the, the character she created, also named Kathy, is iconic. And, of course, extricating one from the other is kind of complicated, too. Uh, Kathy, of course, doesn't run in newspapers anymore. But Kathy Geiswhite has written a book, which I think extends uh, some of the comic and not-so-comic uh, thinking uh, that's in Kathy. Uh, and, and the theme for our show today is sort of the search for happiness. Uh, a little bit later on the, in the show, you're going to meet Leo Canty. Uh, who has, uh, as a just sort of a retirement project, he decided to visit the top 10 countries on the UN Happiness Index. So the 10 happiest countries, theoretically, uh, in the world. So so happiness is the, or, or the lack of it, is what will run through this. I should say that Kathy Geiswhite, uh, apropos of her book, is going to be at the Mark Twain House. Uh, and uh, the book is 50 Things That Aren't My Fault, Essays from the Grown-Up Years. This is next Wednesday, April 3rd, 7 to 8.30 p.m., part of the Mark My Words series at the Mark Twain House and Museum. You can buy tickets at marktwainhouse.org. Tickets are $30 and include a copy of her book and a free radial tire. No, I made that up, actually. That's going to alarm them at the Twain House, actually, that that I said that. So, Kathy Geiswhite, this is so exciting uh, to to talk to you. Thank you. And um, so I want to, you know, it's sort of weird. We did uh, last week, two weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, Betsy Kaplan, we did a show about Marie Kondo. And so (laughs) this is... This is the bookend, right? This the is, anti-Maria. Yeah, you, the you anti- are the anti-matter <laughs> version of Marie Kondo. But you know, I, I mean that in a semi-serious. I mean, first of all, there is in this book a very specifically a closet-oriented uh, chapter that I mean really is, you know, a refutation or something uh, of of Kondoism. But yeah, but I actually want to ask a semi-serious question about this because I, when I look at somebody like Marie Kondo, she is actually holding out a vision of happiness and organization that is very, very tempting to people. And and it seems like one of the things that you do in your writing and uh, formerly in your cartooning is to say, yes, that's very tempting. Is it attainable? Well, that's the problem. Yeah. That that um, every when, and then in the chapter I, I I wrote in fifty things that aren't my fault called um, don't tell me about your organized closet. Um, <laughs> it, I'm talking to a friend who has you know organized her entire house and it is a fantasy. Of course, it's a beautiful fantasy. We do hold it, but my problem is that everything in my closet sparks joy in some way, or it sparks guilt, and then the you know the or it sparks. Um, remorse and then I can't get rid of things because of those things or it's a lot of my book is about this time of deep attachment to things and people and and we're put in a position where so much of our lives is disappearing as normal you know friends and loved ones are leaving the earth and we're hanging on to everything we can so while loved ones are passing away, I'm not getting rid of of the pile of T-shirts in my closet that maybe remind me a little bit of somebody. Right, 
this, the this, problem. This book, uh, and you use the phrase in it, um, uh, this book is very much uh, a little, at least a little bit about being uh, part of the so-called sandwich generation. Um, although, and I should say, I wrote a book uh, 14 years ago, a memoir about being a member of the sandwich generation. And since that time, Kathy, I have become bread. You know, at the time, <laughs> I, at the time that I wrote the book, I was baloney. Uh, now I'm bread. Now it? you're the bread. Yeah. Well, I, and my feeling is, is uh, we are beyond the sandwich generation. I don't feel like a sandwich at all. I feel like a panini. I call it the panini generation. <laughs> just... We're squashed flat between everything we need to do for our aging parents on one hand, and of course they don't listen, and everything we need to do for our aging children on the other hand, who also don't listen. And we've got our aging bodies, which certainly do not listen, <laughs> squashed in the middle. And this horrible awareness that time's running out to do everything while squashed in the middle that we still want to do in life. And it's it's a panini. One of my favorite moments uh, in, in that regard in the book is our passages. Uh, you talk about um, your daughter who is sort of grossed out by the idea of having to deal with human beings in a context like a gas station. If the card reader at the pump doesn't work and you say, well, there is a human being in there and, you know, you could go just give your credit card to her and your daughter uh, acts like you're, you're suggesting she spend the afternoon with Hannibal Lecter. And, and your parents, who are sort of the opposite, that don't really trust machines, they know about the foot surgery that the bank teller just had. It's all about human contact. And you're, once again, sort of trying to speak both of those languages or maybe just realizing you don't speak either one. Exactly. And, you know, for my daughter's generation, ironically, they're so they she does not make contact with a human being ever. Mm -hmm. And yet she her whole generation has to be camera ready at all times, you know, for the photo for the selfies and the Snapchats and the Instagrams. So it's it's a it's a funny place to be in. And it feels to me like it's a lonely place to be in. Um I am right in the middle because, of course, a little bit of me agrees with both sides always. So, again, squashed. Yeah, I know I feel the same way. I mean, I think we're uh, – I still, for some reason or other, feel good about depositing my check with a teller and just sort of looking at that person. I don't know anything about their foot surgery or their food allergies <laughs> or anything like that. Right, but, so you're you know, in between. Yeah. Well, my dad, my beloved dad, could not, he couldn't even stick an envelope in the mailbox outside of the post office. He had to walk it <laughs> yeah. in and stand in line right. and hand right. a letter, just a letter, to the postal worker who he knew by name. Right. Although yeah. increasingly, I don't want to dwell on this too much, uh, but increasingly that person isn't necessarily geared up. Like, for example, I am the kind of person who would, will go to the post office and say, any, do you have any interesting stamps? Like, I want, I want them to show me the various yeah. books of stamps and stuff like that. And increasingly that person isn't necessarily tickled by that idea. Like, really? Well, I have to show you a whole bunch of different stamps and you're going <laughs> to pick out Star Trek stamps instead of Wonder Woman stamps? But that's the problem. Now Now we can only go and find people who are in our age bracket with our sensibilities, um, our perfect sensibilities to wait on us at, at all establishments. You're right. right. So I, I want to, you know, I said before we went on the other like moments where I jolted forward during this book. One of them was you're describing sort of your retirement from cartooning, and you say that <laughs> your daughter said you used to say that you had 15 good minutes every week. Uh, so first of all, describe when those 15 min minutes were, and then let's talk about that. Uh, the 15 good minutes were right after I dropped off my week of comic strips at Federal Express, and right before I started panicking about the next week of comic strips. Right, and that's you know, I mean, maybe I'm. Uh, 
uh, I will, first of all, I, I, that does bring up that question. You know, you have spent your life in these creative, creative endeavors, which are not things that you can come and go from. You know, they are sort of there all the time. Uh, and and I, just reading that, reading what your daughter was saying, I'm sure my son has said a version uh, of that, that like, you know, how, how pulled away are you? Or I guess the other part of it is, whether you're writing these kinds of essays, uh, as you have in the book, or the comic strip, are you ever not mining reality for material? And are the people around you increasingly suspicious about that? I wish I were the type of person who was always mining reality. You know, I wish it came to me that way. It yeah. never did. I never I never was one of those people who woke up. And the essays in 50 Things That Aren't My Fault came about, honestly, mm-hmm. just like they came out one by one, not in a book form, not in any organized masher, but just like when I couldn't stand something anymore, I had to just write about it. Only the beauty of this, of course, the comic strip was lovely, but it was squashed into four frames. This mm-hmm. Writing these essays was like taking off the Spanx. This was just so <laughs> liberating because I could write, you know, in depth about things. And... um I mean, for instance, the day I think the first essay I wrote was when my daughter um, was leaving for college, mm-hmm. and I see this trail of her things through the house, and and I just like you know I just couldn't believe it. I was just like overwhelmed with how horrible I was going to feel when she finally left home for real. The empty, the unbelievable emptiness, and then. And then I realized that she'd already left three days ago. And this was all the junk in the houses, all the stuff she left well, that I, she didn't take to college. Right. And and that the combination of the sadness and the irritation at her welled up so much. And that's where the essay, um, um, the where the essay called it takes a it took a village. Mm. That's where that one started. And it helped me a lot to write or write it down. Right. Well, you know, it's um, there. I, I find myself. I mean, you can write a joke like nobody's business, whether it's in a, a cartoon strip or in an essay. Um, I find myself enjoying uh, some of the essays where you drop your guard a little bit. Uh, I'm probably not the first person to say that to you, but I also wonder. It's really funny. Right before this show, I was listening to Fresh Air and Terry Gross was interviewing some kind of therapist who was saying, well, people wonder if they ever reveal themselves truly, will anybody accept it? You know, and, and I wonder about that for a writer like you, that you know, you're so used to making people laugh. You're so used to taking human misery and converting it into comedy. How comfortable are you just kind of dropping the gloves a little bit and saying, oh, no, this actually really hurts in a fairly conventional way? Honestly, I... I, I liked having the chance to be more thoughtful in the book. Mm-hmm. I liked, I mean, I started, one of the essays called is called um, uh, Unexpired Love, where I'm talking about my mother, my beloved 90-year-old mother, mm-hmm. cooking me a meal out of all in- expired ingredients from her <laughs> kitchen and me being sure that she's going to poison me. So it kind of starts out as a joke, but then, but then... The the essay form gave me time to start talking about mom, about how much I will miss her and all her expired ingredients when she's not there, and also talk about where she came from, from her generation, where she's an educated, wonderful writer herself who never had a chance to do that. And I write about, I think, you know, more meaningfully about the difference between the opportunities I had and what she didn't have and how she came from a little village where her mom in Slovakia, where her mom, her mom never even learned to read or write her own name and how mom, uh, 
mom kind of channeled everything she could have been, should have been, wanted to be into her children. And, you know, who am I to... (laughs) Who am I to criticize her? Who am I to snap at my 90-year-old mother for making me egg salad out of eggs from last Easter, basically? (laughs) You know, if I die today, I end up by saying if I die today, you know, it'll be the best meal of my life. I love the chance to write more thoughtfully. The um, Well, I mean, there's a way, since we're on this, there's a way in which there's another kind of panini or kind of phyllo dough, multi-layered thing that's going <laughs> on there, too, which is, which is that, you know, there are so many different ways in which uh, women get defined and, and generationally get defined. So, you know, Kathy was uh, a strip that spoke to a lot of the angst uh, uh, and, and uh, of a generation of women uh, living with a, a group of uncertainties and suddenly realizing they weren't alone. Uh, on the other hand, there's been sort of another wave uh, uh, of younger women sort of wishing that Kathy were a more assertive kind of person like what they want to be. But you're also writing in this book about, for example, how you you maybe want to make your daughter into that assertive person, but what she really wants is a really cool bra that will you know, make her breast look uh, bigger. Um, that th- it's sort of the 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 shelf that has all the right answers on it. It's kind of hard to p- see. Well, yeah, the essay the essay in Fifty Things co- that's called the Build a Boob Workshop talks yeah. about you know my generation where my mother was mortified that you know she sewed little hooks in all my clothes so a little white bra strap wouldn't show versus the experience of me taking my, you know, emancipated daughter into Victoria's Secret and she's buying the magenta push-up power bra with the matching thong. Lingerie, but we're buying our generation, our generation of liberated feminists is buying our daughter's hooker (laughs) hooker (laughs) underwear, basically. And... It's, I'll just say it's complicated. Of course, we're thrilled that our daughters have the freedom to express themselves and feel good about their bodies. But possibly they're sending mixed messages sometimes. It's, it's, it's complicated. It A is lot complicated. of it's complicated. Yeah. Look at what happened to the blue jeans, for instance. Yes. I wrote one of the essays in 50 Things is called um, Don't Tell a Woman to Just Wear Jeans. My generation <laughs> launched blue jeans mm. as the cool, happy, relaxed, comfortable wear, you know, in the 70s. This, it was like the unisex uniform. Mm. And now that women have taken a stand and demanded, you know, things made for their bodies or the companies have. Now blue jeans have gone from this happy, relaxed, empowering, free item of clothing to basically stretch denim girdles that, you know, girls are packed in with little holes and peekaboo tattoos and... I don't know. You go, well, what did we do? So uh, the book, what what I loved, one of the things I loved about writing the book was being able to look back at where we were, what we thought was going to happen, mm-hmm. what we thought we were changing, and then look at what hasn't changed, what has changed, what still is there to change. Yeah, that, that Jean's essay has a great moment where you just kind of describe metaphorically that moment on a day in freshman year where thousands of girls took off whatever they'd been given packed from home to bring to college uh, and put on jeans instead. Put on jeans, but, yeah. but instead of being that that whole, yeah, the, the promise was, well, you're kind of going to be having the same relationship with what you wear from the waist down that 
the boys have with what they wear from the waist down. But you wind up with 75 pairs of jeans, none of which is appropriate for the particular mission you're going on that night. Well, and the fact, yeah, the reality now is that blue, uh, shopping for blue jeans is almost as bad for a woman as shopping for a, for a bathing suit. And in fact, slightly more complicated because at least a bathing suit has one purpose and jeans, you know, are they you need the good jeans, the fancy jeans, the dressy jeans, the not dressy jeans, the casual jeans. It's, I wrote in the comic strip a lot and some in the book a lot about um, shopping because it's and the because it's kind of it's always kind of a microcosm of the extra pressures and extra expectations on women that men don't have that I you know my feeling that women because of it if you add up the extra time we have to spend buying every single thing for our bodies and our faces and our hair I figure men have about eighteen thousand extra hours <laughs> at their disposal. Which is one of the things I point out is not our fault. Right. And I, I, reading the book, I found myself, and I was sort of thinking about what the second half of our show is going to be today, where uh, Leo has been uh, visiting a lot of these countries that are not, that are often, you know, sort of more like socialist democracies. Uh, and I mean, there's a way in which your writing is kind of a crypto leftist critique of capitalism, that capitalism really <laughs> is wow. this thing. That, well, no, it really is. It's this thing that holds out constantly the promise of satisfaction without, while constantly also metamorphizing that promise so that you really never land on that satisfaction. I mean, the only way capitalism can function is by moving the target all the time, by selling you something and instantly creating an obsolescence for it and replacing it with something else that you want. And and, and you and your characters, I think, seem very trapped in that continuum. Well, in 50 Things That Aren't My Fault, I also write a lot about how it just messes with women's minds. Look at the look again at the generational difference at our free daughters, at our wonderful free daughters who are have been trained to love and accept their beautiful bodies exactly as they are. It's on the covers of all the magazines. Mm-hmm. Embrace your honest self. And yet, look in the um <laughs> Look at inside the magazine, of course, are 50 articles on how to lose weight and get slim. But that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But look at the, again, to, not to dwell on Spanx, but it, it's it's like a microcosm of what has and hasn't happened. I mean, now our my generation burned the bras and got rid of the girdles. We were free of that. The younger generation is dressing in Spanx, which are basically like a neck to <laughs> neck to to ankle girdle. Yeah. It's just repackaged. You know, it's repackaged in a way that is makes it appear hip and liberating and it's not. It's still squashing your beautiful body into a shape that it isn't. And it's also <laughs> constricting women in a way that men never are constricted. Although I have to say, Kathy, I did. Do you for, wear Spanx? No, well, actually, <laughs> actually, I did, I did. A, I did a piece for Men's Health about men's Spanx, which there are. There are now. Oh now no, I didn't know that. Yes, I'm and, sorry. And also for a piece earlier than that, I did wear pantyhose for one day. Uh, <laughs> now, and, how was that for you? Well, I were take, they control top? I was. I I think they were control top. Yes, and I was a Q. I think, and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say with the moment at which I took them off. 
you know, yes. was obviously the Happy. best moment of the day. Uh, yes. But I was also aware the minute I took them off that they'd been doing a certain amount of work for me, too. Yeah. So, uh, but then you didn't need to wear a tube dress, you know, a, a stretchy tube dress. Well, that's you don't, you don't, you're assuming, look. you're assuming I didn't. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you're actually correct about that. Hey, I, I, I would be remiss. I mean, there are other moments about the book, 50 Things That Aren't My Fault by Kathy Guyswhite, uh, that jolted me. And, uh, you know, obviously the combination or the, the 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 way people would sort of combine you with your character um, that you created for those 34 years is it's inevitable but you know one of the moments that jolted me was in fact the um, the essay about your marriage where you said that you'd actually had to promise your strip readers that Kathy wouldn't get married at one point, that she wouldn't join the other side, that it was like important to them and that you actually had to delay Kathy's marriage for about seven years after your own just so, I don't know, so to break the whole thing in. I mean, that idea that they would feel that kind of um, almost obligation from you to, to not <laughs> desert them is, I don't know, maybe you can say something about that. Because I founded the comic strip on singleness and dating. And also, I was of the generation, and a lot of my readers were of the generation, where the training was that you put off marriage and children until you get your own life and career established. You know, you set yourself first. So, And there was a, a pride there was a pride and camaraderie about singleness, especially as we got older and more and more of our friends started getting married and, you know, abandoning ship. Yeah. It was important to women that Kathy, at least Kathy, stay single. So, yeah, I felt massive guilt about having her get married. But truthfully, after – and I waited seven years after I I got married, <laughs> partly because of the guilt, but, of course, partly because I didn't, <laughs> didn't want my new husband thinking I had married him for material, which right. – you wind up thinking anyway, sort of. <laughs> um, all right. So um, first of all, it's been so much fun to talk to you uh, after you. having read this trip all these years. I want to remind people the book's coming out. I think the technical publishing date might be Monday, uh, but Wednesday is the day April you're going to- April 2nd. April yeah. 2nd. Okay. So uh, it's the Tuesday. So then Wednesday is the day you're going to uh, um, hire yourself over to the Twain House uh, and where Kathy Guyswhite will be talking about this book from 7 to 8.30. Go to marktwainhouse.org to find out about tickets and other stuff. Kathy Guyswhite, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking to you. And we will continue to pursue happiness after this break. Come you sinners and just follow me. Forget your troubles and just get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah. Come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord is waiting to take your hand. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. All right, well, if you don't go to Kathy Guyswhite's thing on Wednesday, I hope you're coming to Freshly Squeezed at Watkinson School, where we're going to be talking about the sky, about astronomy, about what, you know, there's, I don't know, we have wonderful astronomers joining us to just talk about all of the, 
pleasures of astronomy and, and just the mystery of what's up there. Uh, I'm not doing a very good job of describing this, uh, but uh, I mention it because our guest in the studio here, I often run into it freshly squeezed, and on one of those occasions, Leo Canty, retired labor political and communications activist and a member of the Current's board, uh, voice, Current's Voices Board of Contributors, mentioned to me that he'd been traveling the world uh, using as his pole star, more or less, uh, the United Nations World Happiness Index and going to the 10 happiest countries, trying to cover all of them. This is the kind of thing you can do when you're retired. Uh, so first of all, Leo, welcome. Welcome back into our studios. It's great to be here, Colin. So uh, maybe the first of all, just tell people a little bit about how you understand this index to work. I mean, what, what are they really looking at? Well, the United Nations have been working at this since uh, 2012. It's uh, seven years of, of data and uh, other things that they've collected. It's maturing over time. And they are looking at a number of indices from 156 different countries that they can quantify in a way to say that these are happy countries and these are not happy countries. And so they look at the different social and environmental issues that are there along with polling and surveys and then they get a whole bunch of brainiacs in a room and they all assimilate all the data and put it out. And then on March 20th of every year now, they publish the happiest countries list. And so this year, uh, Finland has came back second time and America actually dropped a peg. Yeah, so um, the list is heavily stacked. The top of the list is heavily stacked with Scandinavian socialist democracies, basically. Um, I, I'm guessing that you think that's no accident. Um, well, actually, all 10 of the top 10 countries have some form of social democratic principles that mm. they uh, that they adhere to. And a lot of it just has to do with the fact that they take care of their people first. Yeah, It's a simple premise, something I, we could learn here. Right. I, I remember having a conversation uh, quite a few years ago now on this show with uh, the Minister of Education from Finland, where they also have a famously successful public education system. And before I could even get the question out of my mouth, he basically said, look, the difference between us and you is that you have a system of winners and losers, and we don't, that we consider the system to have failed if everybody isn't performing and, and be, being educated within it. We, we, we won't tolerate that. That's our, uh, that's our benchmark. You know, how's everybody doing? Not how is this one person doing? What kind of you know, paragon are we producing up here at the top? And I'm, I'm guessing you found a lot of that kind of attitude and thinking. Yes, I did. And, you know, and well, first of all, I went on the tour for a few reasons. One is obvi obviously the bucket list. The other one is having been a labor leader for 35 years. My personal pursuit was to try to do everything I could to help make people happy with good benefits and good time off and good wages and all that stuff. And I kind of decided that uh, by now I really need to visit the countries that have it just to see what I couldn't get over yeah. those years. <laughs> um, and so, so it worked out uh, along with a bunch of other things, including, you know, Bernie Sanders running and saying how great Finland was and everybody trashing in. I said, well, I really need to see for myself. Yeah, I need to go look. I need to talk with these people, immerse myself for a day or two in each of the countries and come back loaded with all kinds of stories and information that could say, wait a minute, we, we just we can't just rule things out because someone has told us something, we actually need to either experience it or look at some deeper data or other stuff that could actually paint a better picture than some anecdotal comment about how good or bad healthcare is in a country we don't even know about. Well, let's get a second-hand look at some of the people that you did talk to. Uh, Maria in Iceland is somebody that you you, you bring up. Uh, tell us about her. Oh, Maria. She's 20 years old. She's a server in, uh, in Reykjavik in a nice uh, uh, restaurant called Grill Husid. Uh, 
terrific Iceland lamb there, by the way. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, everywhere that I went, I tried to engage in some kind of conversation with as many people as I could. I was in <laughs> restaurants. It was at the hotel. I was on a, a, uh, a shuttle ferry uh, from Auckland over to um, uh, Devonport and uh, New Zealand. And I tried to engage them, and then I would tell them that I'm on a happy country tour, and I got a snicker out of that. And, you know, there were often some references to well, why are you doing that? And we're, you know, it's like they don't need to, to talk about being happy because they are. And Maria was a, a server in a restaurant who had this great future ahead of her. She has health care. She's got a guaranteed pension. Um, with the minimum wages are so much higher that she could afford to go to school, which is a minimal cost there, and, and live on her own. And, and it was just there's a, a, she is an example, and there are many more, of the fact that, that she's a free person because she can go wherever she wants and do whatever she wants without that, that element of having feeling pressure to be a winner. Mm-hmm. And she could live a wonderful life. Um, and feel secure and happy about it. And, 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 you know, there's an enviable issue about this. You know, our own pursuit of happiness in this country seems to be a constant pursuit. Mm-hmm. And the happy countries, they've found it. Yeah. It's there. They've captured it. They're in it. And so to me, the stories that I heard and the people I talked to and the research I've done says we're missing something here. Right. I don't know if you heard me say this to Kathy Guy's wife, but there is a sense in which the system that we have right now, the consumer growth economy-driven system that we have right now, if people ever are happy and satisfied, the system kind of collapses because they don't want things anymore. Well, you know, the, I mean, in all the countries I went to, there's consumerism. There's every chain store in the world. People buy things. They go out to restaurants. All of the restaurants in the major cities that mm-hmm. I went to were always full. People out there engaged. Uh, I did notice that very few of them actually are looking at their cell phones when mm-hmm. they're dining. They're actually talking and smiling and telling jokes and have a great human social interaction. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, to make the system work, I think what we need to do is start looking, or at least by my definition, is start taking a step back and look and say, okay, what are the things that really can make us happy? Why don't we start looking at ways to do it? I'm not pushing any one of those countries' systems. They're all different in many ways, uh, but what they have done is they've captured the difference between the purest sense of socialism and the purest sense of capitalism, and then they mix a whole bunch of stuff in the middle to try to get uh, to a, a place when, where they think it works for them. So, you know, there are, uh, as we said, Scandinavian socialist democracies. Uh, there's also um, Australia, New Zealand. I think at one of the freshly squeezed things, I asked your wife, where she liked it the best. And I think she said New Zealand. Yes. Um, so tell us about New Zealand. Tell us about Saul. Tell us about uh, the guy you met. Saul there. is from, we were on this this nice, wonderful ferry boat over to a little island off the coast of um, of Auckland, New Zealand. And I'm sitting there. And of course, first thing I do, I say, hey, where are you from? You know, he says, well, I'm from Lithuania. I said, great, I'm half Lithuania. Hmm. And then he says, but I live in Devonport and I've been to a bunch of other countries. He said, then I engaged in the conversation, told him what I was my mission is to visit all the happy countries. And he said he's been around the world. He's a civil engineer, so the skills he has are transferable anywhere. Mm-hmm. So he can go live any, in any country that he wants. And he picked a, a, um, New Zealand, and he's going to stay in the Auckland area. He has a job. He has a pension. He says the healthcare is the best here of anywhere I've been. Um, and, you know, Lithuania is not really high on the happiness list. And so, they're, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's easy to see a difference between Lithuania and New Zealand. But the fact of the matter is that he has the freedom to do to go where he wants, he and his wife, 
and they have a nice house, a nice job, health care, a guaranteed pension plan. He may start making all of his plans for what he's going to do when he retires. And I said, ah, is that freedom or what? <laughs> well, we'll come back to this, too, because I know there's some people that sitting there listening who have a particular critique or a particular answer. But I, I want to meet a few more of these people. And as long as we're down there in that part of the world, if we're, as long as we're down under, uh, you even met somebody who did a postdoc at UConn Health and lived in New Britain but was now living in Australia. John John was at UConn Health Center. He actually helped. Uh, I met him when he helped organize the postdoc fellows into the union, into my union there, and he uh, ended up uh, getting a job um, in Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he absolutely has, and he lived in New Britain. He knows everybody. He's still, he's, uh, we're Facebook friends, and he still knows all the folks and got lots of friends who I know, and, and so there's a commonality. So we said we were going to Australia, and, who's, you know, and he's there. Mm-hmm. So he and, and uh, his, uh, his partner, Tiffany, decided they would spend a day with us and give us a tour, and he had the absolute, absolute comparative uh, ability to say, this is what it was like in America. This is what it was like in Australia. Mm-hmm. And Australia is so much better, except for in their summer when it's 95 degrees in Melbourne at nine o'clock in the morning. But, mm-hmm. you know, everybody has weather issues, which we yeah. can't control. But all the environment that they're in has this tendency to mitigate the things that you don't like. So, so what are those things? What are the mitigating factors? Well, he there? was he was looking. He, he had clearly very good wages. Mm-hmm. So, and Australia has got the highest um, minimum wage in the whole world. Everybody is paid very well. Their net worth, you know, the the wage disparity in that country is very low. So people actually get to real a real share of productivity. Mm-hmm. And so he's got a good wages. He's got a health care plan. He was able to compare his union health care plan at Yukon Health Center with what he's got there. And he likes the Australian plan. Mm-hmm. And and so when you look, then he the environment that he's in, you know, good schools, free college, all those types of things that help to make life easier, better, economically more secure. And he started doing the comparative, as did Marianne in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. They started going through the numbers. And when you start adding a lot of these numbers up on a comparative basis, you start saying, yeah, the taxes are higher, but we have a la carte system in America where we pay for our health care, we pay for our college, we pay for all these things that everybody has. And when you start adding up and start comparing them on percentage tax rates, a lot of them have a better deal. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at some of these things, and he was going over the numbers as Marianne from uh, Copenhagen did, and I said, you know, there's, a, there's an argument to be made there. Uh, what we need to actually have in America is maybe some better math skills. Mm-hmm. Oh, their schools are all good, so they understand the math, math side of the quotients there. Um, well, we'll come back to some of those things too. But um, I also wonder whether that kind of environment allows you to change the frame that you put on on the quest for happiness. In other words, here in this country, I think there's this notion, well, you know, if you have uh, if you have a job as a server in a restaurant, that's not good enough. You got to be doing something to get out of that job and into something else that's a little higher status, that's going to earn you a little bit more money, and that's going to lead to something else, to something else, to something else. It seemed as though you were talking to people, I think there was a a woman in in Tasmania who was saying, no, no, she's in a server's job and that's good. Lily and Hobart. I mean, Hobart is just a beautiful, glorious city, a little harbor surrounded by mountains in there. And, And the scenery is wonderful in this place, Frank's Restaurant there. She's a server at Frank's. And, and the outdoor sitting area, you're sitting there with all this natural ambiance around you, and it just just sitting there makes you happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just being yeah. there on a nice sunny day with a nice breeze coming in, and it, for me, it was just exhilarating. 
And then I met Lily, you know, where's she from, what's she doing? She's from Tasmania. Uh, she's been there, but she's traveled around. She's gone to other places, and she always comes back because she likes it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's she would pursue some of those upward mobility things. She says, you know, I could go to college. It won't cost me anything. But I don't really need to go to college because I like what I'm doing. And I'm here, and it's beautiful, and my family's here. So, and she said, literally, look at that scenery. <laughs> Wouldn't you like that? And it was, I couldn't argue with it. I mean, it was just – there's no question – but the thing that struck me the most is that she had the absolute freedom of that choice to go wherever she wanted mm-hmm. and do whatever she wanted. She likes the people. She likes the engagement. Now, the other side is what you talked in terms of the upward mobility thing mm-hmm. is that in all these countries, I found that all work is valued. Mm-hmm. If you're a server, that's a good thing. It's wonderful. Someone has to do it. And mm-hmm. if you're good at it, then if you enjoy it, that's great. It's not devalued or demonized or, or just, you know, knocked down because of where you are. So the people who worked in the, in the hotels, you know, the mm-hmm. maids and the counter people, they, their work was valued. They, and, and actually, they got paid a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, when, and I talked with a, a bartender in, in, uh, in Copenhagen, uh, Creston. He says he, wouldn't, he didn't want to get into it and I didn't want to ask him personally. But he said, you know, you know it's not – not unusual for a bartender to be making $43,000 American dollars mm-hmm. and for serving. And yeah. then he came over, walked around the bar and sat down with me and had a beer with me because that was his break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's in the bartender's union and, you know, they make a, a – and this is no tips. Yeah. They don't have to – they ha- don't have to scramble for tips. It's all there. Plus he has health care. Plus he has a pension system. If he wanted to go to college, he could for mm-hmm. little or nothing. Um, I didn't even give out the number, which is 860-275-7266. But we already have a call from one of our uh, NOSE panelists, I think. This is Rand uh, in Hartford. Hi, Rand. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. Hi, Leo. Hi. I just wanted to say uh, congratulations to your article. It was awesome. I read in the current great picture of you as well. You look so happy. Everything you're saying, I lived in Germany for many years, and every, although it doesn't make the list of the top ten, it's close by. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, everything you're saying corresponds to stuff that I experienced back then. Um, very, very quick story. One night I was driving across the country with a friend of mine who had a Ph.D. in biology, and he said that in high school his second subject had been sports. If he hadn't managed to get a Ph.D. in, in biology and run a research institution, he would have been a high school gym teacher. And I said to him, man, oh, man, in that sort of destiny way, just think if you hadn't been able to do that, you'd be a gym teacher now. And he said, yeah, well, that, that, that doesn't matter so much to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? You're running a research institution, you have a PhD in biology, you, you might have been coaching 10th grade sports. And he said, yeah, but I, I'm not the kind of person who puts so much into that kind of thing. And, and I thought, this is not an American moment at all. This is so un-American. Well, one of the reasons is that, you know, the differential outcomes between job career X and career Y are not 10 times. It's more like one time. And I think you, you bring that point up again and again. The second point I want to make, and this is a tiny observation, I was in Germany last summer, and I don't know if this struck you in any of the countries you were in. Everywhere I turned, I, I saw people making out publicly, like kissing. <laughs> and, and I thought, I don't know that. I don't see that in America anymore. People sitting on benches just being, being affectionate and kissing. And I had this terrible feeling that 
I don't know if we could like jumpstart happiness by by kissing each other more, but I don't know. Do you have anything to say about the whole kissing problem? There, there might be a chicken egg question there. Uh, you know, whether the kissing begets the happiness or the happiness begets the kissing. But go ahead, Leo. Well, I I saw lots of happy people. There there were affectionate people, but I I wouldn't put it at the level. It, this was a winter time or yeah. you know spring, which it was pretty cold. So they were a lot of people were bundled up, but. But I did notice, I mean, it, you know, people walking down the streets all over the place holding hands, you know, smiling, looking. At, I mean, it, as I tried to immerse myself in the environment, I, what I tried to do is just start looking around and seeing what's different about this place. What is it? What's the, what's the atmosphere? What's going on that actually helps make these people happy? The fundamental issues are the sense of security, and they take care of each other. And I think you know, in, within the spectrum of happiness, generosity and, and the happiness measures that the UN uses, one of them is generosity. And the thing is, is that in a society where everybody agrees that it's a good thing, they all said it's great that we have all the benefits we have. It's great that we're paying the taxes because we really want to help each other. And then you go to the next step after there. And so there's a good feeling that I see that they had because of the fact that they knew they were helping each other. I mean, those are the kinds of things that unfortunately I see waning in American culture, which I think it would be great if we see it to come back. Rand, you might be interested to know that uh, although Germany hasn't cracked the top 10, I, I, think, uh, I think, Rand, Austria in the latest set of rankings did bump Australia out of 10th and, uh, right. and crack in there. So uh, I am planning my trip to Vienna, by the way, so <laughs> I have to get number 10 in. Oh, thanks a lot. Anyway, bye-bye. All right. Thanks for calling. Uh, we should point out that uh, if you're wondering about we, – we haven't said this, but the United States was 17th two years ago, 18th in 2018th, and 19th this year. So you can see where that's headed. Uh, all right. We're going to take a little break. If anybody else wants to call in uh, and uh, ask a few questions, 860-275-7266 of this guest who has made a point of visiting the top 10 uh, countries in at least that particular edition of that UN Happiness Index, 860-275-7266. We'll be back with Leo Canty. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. But if she were living in Australia and were really happy, she might have taken a series of afternoons off and not produced this show at all. But if the show aired in Denmark, you wouldn't care because you'd already be happy and wouldn't be curious about this topic. Also produced by me, Kion Wolf. I try to take the Netherlands with me wherever I go. Our intern is Seth Blair. Part of Bill Curry was played by Pharrell Williams. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to see us. The movie. I mean, not us, us. Never mind. And now... Back to Colin. We believe Lisa is suffering from environment-related despair. Oh, it's even worse when you know it has a name. Now don't worry. She'll be fine after years of expensive treatment. And we have a new drug to combat this syndrome. Ignore it all. All right. So that's the Simpsons uh, dealing with their unhappiness. Uh, Leo Canty has been out seeking happiness in other countries, visiting the uh, uh, top 10 countries in the world, UN World Happiness Report. Um, so um, some somebody's going to call up in about two seconds and say, 
uh, well, the tax burden in those countries is incredibly high. That that the cost of delivering all the kinds of things, and we haven't really talked about the really elaborate kinds of family leave and stuff like that. Ways in which they sort of support people who are who have families and are trying to take care of kids and stuff like that. But it just it all costs too much. What's your answer? Well, I I just don't think that we're actually spending enough time doing the analysis to see whether it does cost too much or not, because mm. m- many of those things that those countries have that they pay for through taxes, we pay for through just you know writing out checks and putting them on the charge card. And the fact of the matter is that when you look at their health care costs, for instance, the cost of, of all those countries to provide the health care is half or less of what it costs for the same care in America with better results. Every one of those happy mm-hmm. countries has a longevity that might be two to four years longer than American longevity. And they have the healthier people. And, and, the, and, and you know, there's a lot to say about it. When you look at the, the higher education and the cost for, for college, and most of those countries have free or low-cost college um, for, for kids, when you start adding up, and I did some math on myself, and like I said, Marianne and John both went through a lot of the numbers with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, our American taxing system, if you're in a mid-range and all this, every number can be disputed by someone else giving an anecdote of their personal. But if you look at real gross averages and say, what's the, what's the ballpark? Mm-hmm. Just trying to get that in for opening day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, someone making seventy-five grand a year might pay uh, might pay in the range, and this is dull, boring math. But you know, they might be in there when it when it comes to about um, you know seventeen percent on the taxes. Then you pay Social Security and Medicare, which is another eight mm-hmm. percent. And a lot of averages I've seen says that healthcare costs for uh, over the the full spectrum America is fifteen or seventeen thousand dollars for a family. That's about fifteen percent. You're up to forty percent plus tax rate. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't include higher ed. It doesn't include time off. It doesn't inc- include child care. It doesn't include, you know, the exceptional schools that they have. And you're saying, wait a minute. And Marianne says that her tax rate is about 38% for someone who she s- claims she earns twice the national average o- of Denmark. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, we need to start looking at that. We shouldn't be just discounting these things because someone says it's bad. Right. One of the things I maintain all along is the thing that we've done the worst in this country is explain what government does and what it can do. That's right. Um, and I mean, Ronald Reagan got away with that whole thing. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you being the biggest lie ever. And that's just not true. Uh, um, and you can certainly have a government any, anyway where that's not a fair thing to say. All right. Let's uh, talk to Tim in Glastonbury. Hi, Tim. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. How are you doing? Sure. Uh, I, I tuned in about halfway to this conversation. I don't know if you guys have talked about Canada at all, but uh, it, it's always struck me that, you know, we share a border where, you know, they get sort of uh, belittled, is my feeling, Canadians, that is, that, you know, there are sort of like little stepbrothers to the north or whatever. But my experience, I've been in Canada a lot. I lived in Washington State uh, for a really long time. Um, I'm actually from New England originally. Went to college in the Midwest. One of my best buddies from school uh, is, is a native Canadian. And he's just like the most chill guy I think I've ever met. And they don't worry about health care. They don't worry about uh, higher education costs. And when you go up there for hockey night or whatever, everybody is just cool and in a good mood. And I, I don't think I've ever met a Canadian who's not just a great person. Right. So, you know? Leo, uh, Canada was seven on the latest set of rankings that I saw, but I've, I don't know. I don't really? think it, it's, you know. My wife and I drove up to Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, it was just very delightful. It's still wintertime there. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we spent two days in Ottawa just touring around, seeing what we could and visiting and talking with people. And it's true. I mean, there, there, there is such a huge misunderstanding, I think, that's perpetrated by people who don't want to have these things happen in our country. And that's my personal conspiracy view. Um, when you pay people higher wages, when you provi- provide them with more benefits, that's going to tap into profits or higher taxes. And so if you demonize the issue, then people automatically draw some kind of conclusion. And I believe that there's just this this misrepresentation of what happens. Canada has a bunch of stuff that goes on better, that they have a better healthcare system. They're, they are the highest country in the world in college gradu- or, or certificate college graduation. Over 57% of their people have some form of college certificate. So they learn more, they do more, they have better wages, they still have the whole health care plan and pensions uh, that we don't have. And it's, so it's right, and it's ignored. It's just we're not paying enough attention. One thing I found in all the countries that I went to, mm-hmm. everybody I talked to knew more about America than I knew about their country. Oh, of course, yeah. That's an important thing is that they have the ability to compare in a, a knowledgeable environment as opposed to stuff that's made up. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we close here, I mean, the, the other critique that c- comes back is it's just not scalable to the size and diversity of our country, that a lot of these countries are smaller, they're more uh, homogeneous. Um, it, it just There's no Chicago uh, in Sweden. But that's, that's yeah. an error, I think, because if you look at every one of the happy countries, you take Iceland has 350,000 people, smaller country than any one of the states in the United States. Right. And they have health care, they have pensions, they have free college, they have time off for their workers, they have very high wages. You know, you don't need a large economy of scale. And in fact, we have states. The 10 happiest countries is the equivalent of about a, a third of the U.S. population, and they do it individually. There, there's, there, those boundaries are totally false. If they can do it, we can do it. We have a little bit of a different system. And one other thing is I just have to say is before we, we wrap up here yeah. is that I need everybody to go to Rent a Finn, okay. as in Finland. Rent a Finn is a program put on by Finland now that they have the second year in a row, Happiest Country. You can actually go online, sign up, do a little three-minute video and say, oh, I want to learn how to be happy. And they'll fly over to Finland and match you up with a Finn to show you how to be happy. <laughs> and this is, But this is the kind of stuff they do. Yeah. Come join us and be happy. And what do we talk about? Well, you know, I don't even want to get into what we talk about all right. the time. But here, here, it's great. It's just lovely. Well, Leo Candy, fun to talk to you. Yes, I was saying during the break that my significant other, I have a hard time getting her really inspired about going to these Scandinavian countries. But maybe Rent-A-Fin will do the job. Leo Candy, retired labor political and communications activist, member of the Hartford Currents of Voices Board of Contributors, and a guy who has gone a lot of places to find out about happiness. We hope you get a little happiness out of the show today, too, or maybe a lot. Uh, Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing, Wolfie for making it sound so good.